Luke chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I want to take a moment to pray for us and pray for our time in God's Word together. So let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you've called us together this evening, that you've brought us here by your grace, undeserved. We all come in this room together, having one major thing in common, and that is that we know we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts to Jesus this evening, that we would see our deep, great, desperate need for him, and that you would set our affections and our hope fully on Jesus Christ alone, not in anything in us, not in anything this world has to offer, but in Jesus alone. Father, I pray that as we look at Luke 15 this evening, that our hearts would be enlarged, that we would share your love and compassion for sinners. Father, we need your help in this. Often, I must confess, Father, I keep sinners at arm's length. And I think we can all confess that together. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as wicked people in need of a Savior. And as we see ourselves in that way, I pray that you would help us to have compassion on others. Call them to the grace that you offer in the cross of your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray that your Spirit would be among us this evening, that you would guide us and lead us into all truth. In your scripture, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would allow me to only speak what is true from what you have said. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son this evening from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. So I want to take a moment and read that parable for us in its entirety before we dive in. So let's read Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, might be one of, I don't know if it's the, but it's certainly one of the most well-known parables in the Gospels, one of the most well-known parables that Jesus tells. And it's interesting that it's one of the most well-known because it's unique to Luke. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke, yet almost everyone is familiar with the story and we all love it right we all love it because we can all relate to the need to be forgiven right we can all relate to the need of this younger brother who has squandered his father's property the need to have your father come running to you and embrace you without question and accept you back into his home we can all relate to what that means as Christians because we know that we've been sinners we know that we're in desperate need of grace and forgiveness and we love the picture and what it means for us as wayward sinners rebellious evil wicked people to be welcomed into the arms of Jesus and that's what we picture when we read this story. And it's what we should picture when we read this story. We picture ourselves in the position of the younger brother being embraced and loved by our loving Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that's what we should do. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But having said that, I do want to be sure we're putting this parable into the right context, into the right situation, and the right reason that Jesus gives it here in Luke chapter 15 because we need to be sure we're answering the right questions with this parable because as perhaps you talked about last night or perhaps you've thought about before we don't have a right to make parables mean whatever we want them to mean right it's very easy to do that it's easy to take stories and pick out every detail and turn it into what you want it to mean it's easy to take for example this parable of the prodigal son and make it be a treatise about how it's evil to take an early inheritance, right? But the parable has nothing to do with that. The parable doesn't speak to whether it's right or wrong to take an early inheritance. That's not the point of the parable. And so we need to be sure we're getting our, doing our best to get to the point that Jesus is making in the parable. And the way we do that is try to figure out what issue is he addressing when he tells the parable of the prodigal son. So what was the issue Jesus was addressing in chapter 15. Well, 
to know that, we need to, we need to back up and look at the beginning of chapter 15. And let's look and see who Jesus is talking to and why he's talking to them. So chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 say this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then the beginning of verse 3 says, So, therefore, he told them this parable. And then he tells three parables, different parables, but all carrying the same ultimate, the same ultimate meaning. So, Verse 3 tells us the reason Jesus tells us the parable, all three of them, including the parable of the prodigal son, is because the tax, or sorry, it's because the Pharisees and the scribes take issue with him being with these tax collectors and sinners. Now, you may be thinking, what's so evil about tax collectors, right? Well, some of you may be saying it's obvious what's evil with tax collectors. But some of you may be thinking, what's the big deal, right? What's so evil about working for the IRS? What's the big deal about someone being a tax collector? Well, in this day, a tax collector, as many of you may know, worked for the Roman government, but they weren't really paid by the Roman government. They just collected taxes for them. And the way they were allowed to make a living is by putting a surcharge on the taxes. And the Roman government didn't say, well, you can only do this much or you must do this much. They just got to make it up. They got to charge people whatever they wanted to charge them. So if somebody made $1,000 in a year and the Roman government charged a 10% tax, they owed $100. But the tax collector could say, you have to pay me $500. And they put 400 in their pocket and they send 100 on to the government. And everybody knew that it worked this way. And so they hated them. They were scoundrels. They were cheats. They didn't like them. They were the worst of the worst. And so here's Jesus with tax collectors, and not just with tax collectors. It says tax collectors and sinners. And when this word sinner is used, it's not using it in the sense that you and I would use it, like saying, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, meaning, you know, I, I might tell white lies, or I might, you know, be deceptive every now and then, or, or you know, things that we would call, quote, unquote, little sins, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who lived in society and all society agreed upon were questionable, sinful, overtly, publicly sinful people. People who the Pharisees and the scribes would look at and they would say, there's no question that these people do not care about the law of God. They're living in rebellion to God. They don't go to church, right? They don't go to synagogue or whatever it may be. They don't, they don't care. They're open and rebellious sinners and tax collectors. And here's Jesus spending time with them. And not just spending time with them. Look and, look and see what, it, what uh, verse 2 says the Pharisees and scribes say about this. It says, this man, meaning Jesus, receives them. So, we begin in verse 1, and it says they're, they're drawing near to him. Tax collectors and sinners, they're coming to him. Well, the, the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't have had a problem with that, right? Jesus can't control who comes to him. That's not his fault. But he could send them away. He could say, I'm not spending any time with you. But no, what do they see him receiving them, welcoming them, allowing them to come to him. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Verse 2 says, this man receives sinners and what? Eats with them. 
shares meals with them. Dare we even say fellowships with them. They're flocking to Jesus. He welcomes them in, and he sits down and has dinner with them. And this, this blew their categories. They could not get their minds around how this man who claimed to be the son of God would have a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Because to have a meal with them in their minds meant he's approving of their lifestyle. To have a meal with them is saying, who you are is okay with me. Now, that's not what Jesus was saying, but that's what the Pharisees and scribes believed he was saying or what people could think he was saying by having dinner with them. And so what Luke is telling us in verse 3 is that these parables that Jesus tells are in direct response to this grumbling attitude coming from the scribes and Pharisees about who Jesus was spending time with, who Jesus was having meals with. So that's the first really important piece that we have to understand when we approach the parable of the prodigal son. He is directly addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. Often Jesus will encounter the scribes and the Pharisees and he'll take issue with something and he'll want to teach about it, but he teaches to his disciples. So he doesn't talk to them. He tells the parable or he teaches the disciples what he wants to say to his disciples about the mistake that the Pharisees and the scribes are making. But here he's talking, it says in verse 3, to them. He says this parable to them because of their grumbling, bitter hearts about who Jesus is spending time with. Therefore, I think it's really important this evening, before we look at the parable, I think it's really important that we test our own hearts. And we need to see if there's any Pharisee in us. Is there any scribe in us? Because if Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes about their attitude then we need to take a few moments and see if that's somewhere inside us and let it come to the surface so that what Jesus says to them, he can say to us and root it, Lord willing, out of our hearts. So just for the next minute, I want to be really open and honest about what I want to try and do. What I want to try and do for the next minute or so is to try and pull out the Pharisee that exists in my heart and the Pharisee that exists in your heart. And that's not easy to do because nobody wants to admit that they're a Pharisee. I don't want to admit that I'm a Pharisee, right? Nobody wants to call themselves that. But let's test our hearts so that we can have that surface, if it's there, and let Jesus address it with the parable of the prodigal son. So, you know, it's difficult, I think, because we read this in tax collectors and sinners. Well, I wouldn't have a problem with someone hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And so what we have to do is try and put this in our context, because who is acceptable to spend time with changes, right, as times change. Just from a public perception position, it changes. You know, for example, whether I want to admit it or not, I've seen some of Downton Abbey and 
in some of those episodes, for someone to be divorced and for you to welcome them into your home and spend time with them, you didn't do that in high society. You didn't do that, but today nobody would think twice about it. So times change. What's acceptable changes. In this day, tax collectors and sinners, it wasn't acceptable to hang out with them. So, so let's try and put ourselves in the Pharisee's shoes and see if that heart of a Pharisee wells up in us. So what if I told you that my family regularly invites over for dinner a same-sex couple that lives in our neighborhood? Sometimes they come to our house. Sometimes we go eat at their house. Or what if I told you that that I have regular casual lunches with a doctor from Raleigh who practices abortion, who's killing babies multiple times a day. Or perhaps in other context, a pastor and his wife may have adult club employees over for dinner or adult movie Stars over for dinner at their house. In some context, that happens. How would you feel about that? That's the equivalent. Right? Jesus was receiving sinners, public, obvious sinners, and sitting down and sharing a meal with them. And it made the Pharisees and the scribes furious. How does it make you feel? By the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not saying this to protect myself, but just saying this to so that no one thinks I'm making stuff up. I, I have not done those things. I haven't had the opportunity to do those things. But if I had, how would you feel about it? Would you feel differently about me standing here this evening? The, the questions that are swirling around in your head are the same questions that swirl around in my head, right? Well, what about your children? What about what they think? What about this? What about that? Right? We all ask these questions. I'm not saying they're, it's wrong to think about those things and to ask those questions. That, that tenseness you feel in your stomach right now, those questions swirling in your mind about, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? That's exactly what the tax collectors and sinners were thinking. What are people going to think about this? And in response to that grumbling, in response to that bitterness, in response to that attitude that existed in their hearts, Jesus told these three parables, one of which was the parable of the prodigal son. So, I know that's a long introduction, but I just wanted to, I think it's important to set the context so we can get, Lord willing, to the meaning Jesus is giving us in this parable by understanding the issue he's addressing, the question he's answering. So what I want to do is simply move through this parable at a pretty good clip, and then I want to make a few observations and applications once we've done that. So... There's essentially four main sections to this parable. We see the rebellious son. Then we see the repentant son. Then we'll see the welcoming father. 
And then at the end, the bitter brother, the rebellious son, the repentant son, the welcoming father, and the bitter brother. So first, the repentant son. As you see this in verses 11 through 16, Jesus begins in verse 11, and he says, there's a man who had two sons. It's really important that he begins the parable that way. He wants here at the beginning to set this up as a contrast between two sons. He didn't have to say that, but he wants to make clear this is about two sons. And there's going to be a contrast between them that you're going to see. So he says there's two sons. It's about two sons. It's not just the parable of the prodigal son. It is that, but it's more than that. It's about two sons. And the younger of the sons ask his fathers to give him his inheritance early. The father agrees. We're not given any details about that. The details aren't really important. He asks for it. The father says, okay. And he divides the property up among them. I think often we read over this, but he, it says he divided his property between them. So the younger brother and the older brother got the inheritance. Right, So the issue isn't it's sinful or wrong or evil to take an early inheritance. It's just it, Maybe it is, but it's not the point of Luke 15, right? It's not the point here. So the younger brother gets it. He agrees. But the younger brother handles it in a different way than the older brother. It says in verse 13, not many days later, he gathered all that he had, meaning all that his father had gave him, and he takes a journey to a far country, and there he squanders his property in reckless living. He just throws it away. He purchases a bunch of stuff that just passes immediately. You know, it's like buying food and just uh, having parties, just stuff that goes away. There's no capital. There's no goods left behind. He just, it's all spent up. He has no money left. He's in a foreign land. And then as if it wasn't bad enough, it says in verse 14, a severe famine comes. So if he could get help from anybody else, he's not going to now because they don't have anything to offer him either because there's severe famines in the land. So he's without money. Everybody else is without goods because there's a famine in the land. There's no one left to help him. And so he's in a desperate situation. He hires himself out to, it says, one of the citizens of the country who allows him to feed his pigs. And of course, in the Jewish culture, pigs were unclean. This is about as low as you could get, right? He is among unclean animals, feeding them. And he's so hungry that it says he was tempted to eat the paws that they fed the pigs. It never says if he actually ate it or not. We don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But he was hungry enough to want to. And it says that there was no one who gave him anything, nobody. So here he is in a foreign land. He spent all his money. He has no family, obviously has no friends, no possessions, no food, and he's desperate. And it's in that moment in verse 17 when it says he comes to himself and all of a sudden this rebellious son becomes the repentant son. And he realizes he would be better off to be a servant in his father's house than he is sitting here tempted to eat the pods he's feeding the pigs. And so he's willing to return to his father's house. He brings up this plan. He says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of 
your servants. Now, we'll come back to this later, but notice that his motives are not 100% pure. He's hungry, and he wants food. It's not to say that his repentance isn't genuine, but it is to say that a very practical, physical need drove him to realize he needed to go back home. And when he realized that, he was willing to say, look, I've sinned against heaven, meaning against God and against my father. And he wants to go home and tell his father that. He assumes that his father at best will allow him to be a servant in his house. So there's a sense in which he believes that there will be some level of kindness from his father. He'll at least let me be a servant, right? A father wouldn't even have to do that, but he'll at least let me be a father. He, he may disown me as a son, but maybe perhaps he'll show me the enough grace. He's counting on the grace to be shown to at least be a servant in the home of his father so he can at least have bread to eat. And so he sets off to meet his father, whom he hopes gives him just a small portion of grace. But what he finds is, in fact, not a small portion of grace, but he finds a welcoming father. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, sets up one of the most, I think, beautiful images in the New Testament, in the parables of Jesus. While he was still a long way off, verse 20, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We don't know for sure. It's somewhat speculation what Jesus was implying here when he told this story, but it seems that the implication was that his father was looking for him. Right? He, he, with great frequency, would look out on the horizon, hoping, hoping to see his son somewhere in the distance, making his way back. It also seems that Jesus is implying that this father had heard about the plight of his son because it says he had compassion on him. So it seems that he knew his son was perhaps in a desperate situation, that he had blown his money. But yet he was still looking for him. He was waiting for him to come over the horizon. And when he sees him, he doesn't wait any longer. He doesn't stand back with his arms crossed with a scowl waiting on his son to get there so he can let him have it when he walks up on the front, to the front of the house. No, when he sees him, his eyes light up, his chest welled up with excitement, and he is unable to contain himself and has compassion on his son and takes off sprinting after his son and runs as fast as he can, as long as he can to him and grabs him and hugs him, embraces him, holds him in his arm and kisses him and welcomes him back into the home. But the son, still not understanding what's going on, says he still wants to, you know, he has this prepared speech that he wants to give his father. And so he starts the prepared speech in verse 21 and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called 
your son. And before he can finish what he intended to say, because remember, he intended to then say, I'll be a servant in your house, but he can't even get it out. He can't even get out the next statement because as soon as the father hears him say, I'm not worthy to be your son, he cuts him off and he says, no, no, bring quickly the best robe we have in the house and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And not only that, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat. And we are going to celebrate because you are my son and I love you and you were dead and now you're alive. And this is a cause for rejoicing and joy. You're not going to be a servant in my house. You are my son. The fattened calf, of course, you know, implied that the fattened calf, this is a calf that had been prepared, that they were saving up for a special occasion. And without even thought, the father says, look, this is the occasion. This is the time to slaughter the calf so that we can eat, so that we can all celebrate the return of my lost son together now. This is a beautiful picture of God's disposition towards sinners. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel that Jesus is painting for you and painting for me, that when sinners turn to him in repentance, he doesn't stand back with his arms crossed. He doesn't say, here's a list of Herculean tasks you have to do to prove your worth and your merit before you can come to me. He doesn't do any of that. He just runs after us and grabs us and embraces us and welcomes us into his kingdom. He adopts us as his very own children. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ, right? He just brings us in and makes us part of his family. He delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Jesus is elevating the glories of the gospel here. You know, some people get picky about this parable and say, well, there's no sacrifice in this parable. There's no propitiation in this parable. How can the father forget the son? The point is, that's not Jesus's point. He teaches about that in other places. Jesus's point here is, my father welcomes sinners with open arms. I hug you. I welcome you. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he is found. It's the driving point of this parable, the celebration that happens, because it's exactly what happens in the parable of the lost coin. She finds it, and in verse 10, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, and then the, uh, the parable of the hundred sheep, when he finds the one of the hundred that is lost, it says in verse 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's great joy in heaven. The angels rejoice when sinners return, when sinners come to and believe in and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. The Father welcomes them and hugs them but not everybody celebrates. And Jesus ends with the bitter brother in verse 25. For some reason, he wasn't there when his brother came back, and he returns from the field, and he hears dancing and singing. And he wonders, what in the world is going on? And one of the servants comes to him and says, your brother's home. He's back. And your father killed the fattened calf for him in celebration that he's returned safe and sound. He's okay. And it says that he was angry. 
verse 28, and refused to go in. He wanted nothing to do with it. Even when his father came out to him, it says he came out to him and entreated him. He begged him, come in and celebrate with us. And with a disrespectful statement said, look, I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. You haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And this guy comes back who spent your money on prostitutes, and you're going to kill the fattened calf for him? How dare you? And his father gently says to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting, which can also be translated necessary. It was necessary to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, Jesus repeating the theme of celebration about the return of a sinner. Now, at the end of three parables, which have all essentially had the same concluding statement, Jesus celebrates, the angels celebrate, God celebrates over the return of sinners. I don't think the Pharisees would have been confused about what point Jesus was making. We should celebrate the conversion of the worst of sinners. It's something to celebrate. It's not something to cross our arms and grumble about, but... I think many of us, myself included, struggle to understand why the Pharisees would have taken issue with there being a celebration about someone repenting and coming to God. Why would they have taken issue with that? I mean, I think, I think if I was a Pharisee standing there, I might have said, Jesus, I don't disagree with you. If a sinner converts and repents, yeah, let's celebrate. But if that's our view, and if that was their view, I don't know what their view was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But if that's our view, we've missed the point. Because remember, the Pharisees weren't angry because Jesus was celebrating the conversion of sinners. Why were they angry? They were angry because he was having dinner with them. And Luke doesn't tell us that these were repentant sinners. Now, maybe some of them were. I don't know, but it's not what it says. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees here is that you don't share the values of heaven. Because if you shared the values of heaven... If you knew the rejoicing that happens in heaven when one sinner repents, you would be willing to do whatever needed to be done to bring a sinner to repentance. Even if that means risking your reputation by having a meal with them. You see, what Jesus intends to do in this parable is to elevate the grace and the love and the embrace that God has for sinners is certainly what he's doing. It's certainly what we should learn from. And it's certainly what we learn from it most of the time. And I don't hear me saying we shouldn't learn that from this parable. But one step beyond that, we need to be rebuked as the Pharisees have been rebuked and ask ourselves, 
Do we share the values of heaven about the joy that happens when a sinner repents? And are we willing to do what needs to be done by God's grace to bring that repentance about? Now, you and I can't force somebody to repent, right? That's a sovereign work of God. I'm not questioning that at all. But God has appointed means, right? Romans 10, how will they hear unless someone what? Preaches. How are they going to hear unless we go to them and spend time with them? How are they going to hear the gospel unless we have conversations with them, right? How are they going to hear the gospel unless we sit down at a table with them and get to know them and let them know we actually care about them and don't just care about winning? Which is often what evangelism turns into, right? You see a guy on the street, you just want to win the argument. But Jesus says, no, we can, we can sit down with sinners. We can share a meal with them. And we can share the gospel with them, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples. Not sit back and wait, and then when they convert, celebrate. Go. Make disciples. Bring joy to God your Father. Let there be a celebration in heaven because of what you're willing to do to be used of God to bring a sinner to repentance. So I ask you this evening, do you share in your heart the exuberance of heaven, the exuberance of God your Father over a sinner who repents? And challenge yourself with that question because one way to test or answer that question is to say, How willing am I to proclaim the gospel to my friends, to my family, to my neighbors, to my coworkers, and to that guy who is so wicked, there's no way I think he could ever believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, sit down and have a meal with him. Don't worry about what people think about it. Because if he repents, there's going to be a celebration in heaven. Do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to bring it about? Now, having said all of that, I do want to make clear that if you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus, what this parable says to you is Jesus welcomes you with open arms. He welcomes repentant sinners. Come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. God the Father will embrace you, hug you, welcome you in. He wants you. Repent of your sins and come to him now. That's what this parable says to you. And the good news is this. I don't know about you, but as I studied this, I saw a pharisaical heart in me, and perhaps you felt it in you tonight. And the good news is this. God the Father embraces Pharisees too. The gospel is for Pharisees like me and for Pharisees like you who see our need for a Savior. If only these Pharisees had said, oh wait, I'm the young son. I'm the young son. I can come back to my Father and he'll welcome me in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a welcoming, inviting, loving, forgiving Father.
and that in Christ we have forgiveness, that he has paid our debt. He has lived a perfect life in our place so that you could adopt us. He has died and taken the punishment we deserved in our place so that we could be your children for all of eternity. Thank you for the grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would make us faithful to proclaim your gospel to the worst of sinners to not keep them at an arm's distance, but to run after them, to seek and to save the lost, to share your heart for those who need the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.